it's our goal and it's our desire to give praise to God this morning. So we invite you to just uh, kick back and enjoy these moments in the presence of God. Let's pray together, shall we? God, we thank you for drawing near to us in this place and in our lives. We want to be followers of Jesus, but we don't always want to follow him. We admit that sometimes the cost is too great. We don't want to listen when the conversation turns too serious or demands too much of us. Instead, we prefer to indulge ourselves. We cling tightly to our lives, and we grasp at worldly rewards. God, forgive us, we pray, and allow us to hear your word today. Remind us that we are your people called out from the world to worship you and to serve you and to bless your holy name. Amen. Today we're continuing a three-week teaching series called Upon This Rock, and we're looking at a statement of Jesus in Matthew's Gospel, the 16th chapter, uh, about the foundations of the church. Now, Kim spoke last week uh, on the question that Jesus asked his disciples, who do you say that I am? A question that we all eventually have to answer. And today I'm going to invite us to take a little trip to a town by the name of Caesarea Philippi, and, uh, and there look at a statement that Jesus made to the disciples after they responded to the question about his identity. And we're going to learn about a, little, a little bit more about what the church was uh, originally designed to be. Let's pray together, shall we? Loving God, you call us to turn away from our own selfish interests and take up the cross and follow you daily. Um, we often uh, find uh, our lives when we give them up to your greater purpose. So we come before you this day with open hearts, with open hands. We're eager to hear your word. We're eager to know your will. Through the power of your spirit, move among us and within us as we worship you. Open our eyes to your presence. Open our ears to your call. Open our hearts to one another. And then send us out of this place into the world in which we live to work as your faithful disciples. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. To get to the Arab town of Benias, you will have to travel north from Jerusalem to this uh, place like Tiberias or Capernaum. And from there, travel even further north to the edge of the region of Galilee. And then you would pass through a community called Kiryat Shimona. On your left would be a mountain range. Beyond the mountain range is Lebanon. On your right, another mountain range, and beyond that is Syria. Once you leave Kiryat Shimona, you will travel north again, out of Galilee altogether, and go east for a few miles, and at last you will come to Benias. It's not a town, it's more like a settlement. And what you will see there today are a few buildings and a spring and behind the spring, an enormous rock cliff. And built into the cliff is an ancient Catholic monastery. Not far away is the majestic snow-capped peak of Mount Hermon. That's all there is to Peneus today. Many generations ago, it was called Peneus, after the Greek god Pan. About the time of Christ, Philip the Tetrarch enlarged Peneus and renamed it after the great Caesar Augustus. But he added his own name so that no one would confuse this city with any other city built by, uh, to honor the emperor. And so the name today is Caesarea Philippi. 
And it was here to Caesarea Philippi that Jesus brought his disciples. What happened in that Gentile city changed the course of history. For it was there that he asked them the question, who do people say that I am? Who do people say that the Son of Man is? They answered Jesus with the best wisdom of their day. Some say, you're John the Baptist. Others say, you're Elijah. Some say, you're Jeremiah, one of the prophets. But Jesus pinpointed the question and he said, but who do you say that I am? And that's really the fundamental question, isn't it? And against it and in comparison with it, there are no other questions. But who do you say that I am? It's one thing to know the answers that other people give, and that's a good thing. We go to school, we read books to learn all of that. It's a good thing to know the opinions that other people have of our Lord, but there is a question that goes beyond that, and it's a very personal question. But who do you say? That Jesus is when Jesus asked that question of his disciples he had come to a crisis point in his ministry he had come to his own people and they had not received him it was true that the common people heard him gladly some loved him but as their answers revealed they had no idea who he was it would be fair to say that the common people liked Jesus they just didn't worship him it was, but it was in Caesarea Philippi, beside this great rock cliff, uh, which is still there today, that Jesus asked these disciples the question, you have been with me all this time. Who do you say that I am? And when Jesus asked that question, he asked it in the plural. It's hard to tell that in our English translations, but it's really there. And when Peter answers, he's not just answering for himself, but for all 12 disciples, Peter said, you are the Messiah. You are the son of the living God. A simple, concise answer. And from that answer, the world shifted course. When Peter said those words, Jesus looked at Peter and he gave him a, gave him a promise which has become one of the foundation stones of the Christian church. He said, now I say to you that you are Peter, which means rock, and upon this rock I will build my church, and all the powers of hell will not conquer it. In this teaching series, we're looking at what Jesus has to say about the church. And that's why we're here in Matthew chapter 16. Last Sunday, Kim talked about the church's statement of faith. You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Today we're talking about the foundation of the church. Upon this rock, I will build my church. And having said that, I must admit that we are wading into a sea of controversy. For at least 400 years, Christians have disagreed over the meaning of these words. You are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. Sincere Christians have disagreed, and brilliant scholars have disagreed, and entire churches have based their existence on one particular interpretation of this passage. To be perfectly honest, between the Roman Catholic Church and the various Protestant churches, there is a veritable continental divide over this statement of Jesus. I would describe the difference this way. The traditional Roman Catholic interpretation is that when Jesus said to Peter upon this rock, I will build my church and all the powers of hell will not conquer it, 
he was saying that Peter himself was the rock upon which the church would be built. That is, Peter was to have a primary role over the other disciples. And the keys of the kingdom that Jesus talks about in verse 19 refer to the prerogatives given to Peter as the first leader of the Christian church and the first bishop of Rome. Ultimately, of course, the Roman Catholic Church looks to this passage as proof that Peter was indeed the first pope. Their understanding of the interpretation of this passage is the foundation of their church's authority structure. Protestants have given a number of different answers over the centuries. One of the most popular ones goes something like this. There are two different Greek words used here for Peter and rock. Peter is Petros, which can mean a small stone, and rock is Petra, which can mean a large rock. And in this case, Peter is not the rock. The rock is his confession of faith. So Jesus would be saying, you are a small stone, Peter, but I'm building a church on your rock-like confession of faith. Now, some interpreters have even suggested that Jesus was standing in front of this massive rock cliff in Caesarea Philippi when he said that, and may have even picked up a stone when he, when he talked and said, you are Peter, and then gesturing toward himself, upon this rock I will build my church. So you have a couple of the great answers to that question, uh, so what is the rock upon which the church is built? That's the question we ask today. Is it Peter? Or is it his confession of faith? I would like to suggest to you this morning maybe a third interpretation. First, when Jesus said, upon this rock I will build my church, he was referring to Peter. And I say that because the two Greek words, Petros and Petra, basically mean the same thing. They're, very, they're different forms of the same word. One is masculine, the other one is feminine. That's the only real difference. And Jesus is saying something like, Peter, you are a rock man. Secondly, when Jesus said, upon this rock I will build my church, he said it after Peter made his great confession of faith. And the timing here is critical. It's not as if Jesus looks around at these disciples and says, well, guys, you're the best I got. I guess we'll have to settle and for one of you to, to kind of step up to be the leader. Jesus wasn't looking for some fall guy on which to build his church. Peter could not have been the rock until he, after he made this great confession of faith. So that is, the rock is, not, the, the rock is not Peter the doubter. The rock is not Peter the denier. The rock is Peter the believer. Peter the confessor. And the rock is Peter as he publicly confesses that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And upon that rock, Jesus is going to build his church. Now third, when Jesus said, upon this rock I will build my church, he very likely could have been saying it to Peter as representing all the disciples. Remember I mentioned that the question was in the plural. Who do you, plural, say that I am? And Jesus wasn't asking that of Peter alone. He was asking that of all of them. And when Peter answered, he wasn't just answering for himself, he was answering for all the disciples. And when Jesus said, you are the rock, he may not have just been speaking to Peter alone, but speaking to all of them. Yes, Peter was the first. He was the leader. Give him all the credit for that. When no one else would speak up, speak, Peter spoke up loud and clear. Yes, Peter is the rock, but so were the other apostles. I think Jesus was saying, Peter, you're a rock. And upon you and people like you, 
I am going to build my church. Now, to say that is not to agree with everything else that other people may say about Peter being the rock. It is to say that Peter is the foundation of the church in the sense that when he made this great confession of faith and all the disciples with him, he was the rock. And they were the rocks upon which the church would be built. Let me put it another way. The church is not built on people alone, nor is it built on a confession alone. The church is built on people confessing together that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of the living God. That is the foundation of the church. A confession of faith is just an idea. It's an idea by itself, uh, and an idea, any idea by itself is a weak and lifeless thing. Take the law of gravity. By itself, it's just a theory, but take a man like Isaac Newton and let him meet the law of gravity and suddenly the course of history has changed. Take the principle of electricity. By itself, it's just a principle, but take someone like Benjamin Franklin or Thomas Edison and let them meet that principle and lights go on around the world. So I'm saying that the church is not built upon an idea alone or a theory alone or a confession alone but the church is built on people who meet a great idea and people who make a great confession that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And that is exactly what Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20 tells us when Paul says, together we are his house built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets and the cornerstone is Christ Jesus himself. Now I understand that this way. The cornerstone or the bedrock of the church is Jesus Christ himself. And upon that bedrock are the apostles, those unlikely, uneducated Galilean fishermen, those tax collectors and political rabble-rousers, those people who left everything to follow Jesus. They are the foundation stones of the church. Many years later, Peter wrote a letter which found its way into the New Testament. We call it the first epistle of Peter. And this is what he says in, chapter, uh, in, in the second chapter. You are coming to Christ, who is the living cornerstone of God's temple. He was rejected by people, but he was chosen by God for great honor. And you are living stones that God is building into his spiritual temple. What's more, you are his holy priests. And through the mediation of Jesus Christ, you offer spiritual sacrifices that please God. That is to say, Jesus Christ is the living stone. And upon him is built first the apostles, and then all the first century believers, and then the second century believers, and then the third century believers, and the fourth and the fifth and the sixth, all the way up to the 21st century. And here's where we fit in. When we confess our faith in Jesus Christ, we become living stones joined into that great church which Jesus Christ continues to build. There's an important truth here. We are not Christ followers because we have shown up to church this morning, as wonderful as that is. We're not Christian just because we've been baptized, as good as that is. We're not a Christian because of anything we do, because of anything we say. We are a Christ follower because we believe and confess Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. And the church is not made up of people who have attended worship or been baptized or have gone through membership class, as, all of, as good as all of those things are. It is not just made up of people who tithe their money 
uh, as good as that may be, the true church is made up of people who have confessed one revolutionary truth, that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And so the church's foundation is first and foremost the bedrock, Jesus Christ. Then comes the apostles then, uh, that were led by Peter who first confessed that truth. And then finally we join in who have come face to face with this great idea that Jesus is the Son of God from heaven. And in that moment, we become living stones in the church that Jesus is building. So what does that mean for us here at Redeemer? Let me suggest that there are three things that the church is not. First of all, the church is not this building. It's a common mistake we make. We say, I'm going, I'm going to go to church today. But we're really talking about the building, aren't we? The building, this building is a wonderful place. But no matter how attractive or sizable it is, this building is not the church. Because although it is built of bricks and mortar, those building materials are not alive. The church of Jesus Christ, the church that he is building, is made of living stones. Secondly, the church is not the membership list. You may say, doesn't the church consist of its members? Well, yes and no. The church technically consists of its members and those who attend, but the church is not the membership list. Why? Because it's possible for a person to go through all the motions of joining a church without ever putting personal faith in Jesus Christ. That is, it's possible for someone to nod their head, sign on the dotted line, without ever making that personal relationship with Jesus Christ. In that case, you're a member of the church, but you may not be a Christ follower. So what then is the church? The church is the people who have embraced Jesus Christ and have given themselves totally to him. That's the church that Jesus is continuing to build. And we who make up the congregation of this church are not here because we're beautiful and glamorous and wealthy and influential and intellectual or outstanding in any particular way. There are a few people here who may fit some of those words, and there are a lot of us who don't fit any of those words. But there is one thing that fits all of us. In our hearts, we have embraced the Lord Jesus Christ. We have made him our own. He belongs to us. We belong to him. And that one fact makes us a church. Only one more question for you. Are you in the church or out? If you're in, you're in because you have embraced Jesus Christ. And you've given yourself and your life to him. If you're out, it's because you haven't done that yet. The last part of this verse, though, is an interesting phrase, and I want to just touch on it before we close. The phrase in, in the last part of this verse says, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, this, some, this statement is sometimes taken in some mystical sense as if Jesus meant to say, hey, don't worry, folks. It's all going to work out in the end. Or some have supposed that Jesus was saying that the church would be protected from all of Satan's attacks. Actually, there's no reason to be mystical about this. These words have a very precise meaning and a very precise application. The phrase, shall not prevail, is from the Greek word, which itself comes from two other words, kata meaning against or upon, and ishuo, which means to be strong or to have strength. So we put them together, and it means to have the strength to go into battle against the enemy. And not only that, it means to have the strength to gain victory over the, our foe. It's not just the strength to fight, it's the strength to win. 
Prevail is maybe a better translation. Overcome. It's a military term. It's what an army does when it wins the battle. But this is the... This is stated in the negative. Jesus is saying that the gates of hell, whatever they are, may fight against the church, but they will not win. The battle will rage long and hard. Soldiers may die on every side. The gates of hell may win a few skirmishes or a whole string of battles, but they will not win the war. The gates of hell are strong, but they aren't as strong as the Son of God. Now, the word hell doesn't necessarily mean what you think it means. When we hear the word hell, we think of a place of fire and brimstone, a place where lost men and women suffer eternally. And the Bible does speak of such a place and calls it hell. But the Greek word Jesus used here is the word Hades. Doesn't always refer to a place of eternal torment. You remember in the Greek mythology, there was a character uh, by the name of Hades. He was the god of the underworld. Specifically, he was the god of the realm of the dead. Hades comes from two Greek words, literally meaning not to see. So Hades in the Bible generally refers to the invisible realm of the dead. In that sense, it corresponds to a Hebrew word that we often see in the Psalms, sheol. It is that shadowy, unseen world where the dead go. And here's the important fact. When the Bible speaks of Hades, it's not necessarily making a distinction between those who are saved and those who are lost. It is simply the land of the dead. Now let me say it maybe more plainly. The Bible does teach that some people will suffer eternally in a place of terrible torment. The Greek word most often used for that place is Gehenna. But when the Bible speaks of the invisible realm of the dead, it uses the word Hades. So Jesus is saying that the gates of the realm of the dead will never overpower the church. But what are the gates? Well, the word gates is another common uh, Greek word meaning entrance, uh, by which we pass from one realm to another. Gates serve two purposes, to keep people in or to keep people out. For instance, this same word is used when it talks about the gates of the city of Jerusalem or the gates of the temple or prison gates. Gates are a means of access, they're means of entry. If Hades is in the land of the dead, what is the gate by which we enter that realm? And the answer is we have to die to enter the realm of the dead. Death is the gateway to Hades. So what then is Jesus saying? He is saying that death, in all of its ugly power, will never overcome the church that he is building. But why did he say that? Well, if you look down to verse 21, from that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Now to us, that's old news, isn't it? We've heard it a thousand times. But to the disciples, this was brand new. It was a first. This was new information. Jesus would die, but he would come back to life. Now at some point in time, all of us will be gone. But you know what? The church rolls on. Why? Because it doesn't depend on human beings like us. The church is not an ethnic body. It's not a political entity. It's not a moralistic association. The church is a fellowship of redeemed people, people who have experienced the forgiveness and the grace of a merciful God, and it is built on the word and the promise of Jesus Christ, who is the living one, who was dead and now is alive forevermore. 
and who holds the keys of death and of Hades in his hand. So my question for you this morning is this. Do you know Jesus? Do you know this Jesus? Have you given your life to him? Have you experienced his love and his forgiveness and his mercy? If not, you can make that commitment today. You can know for certain that you are a child of God. You know, since the church is the people of God, Jesus continues to build his church and he continues to build his people. When we pray for better fellowship, Jesus is making us better fellowshippers. When we pray for a better prayer ministry, Jesus will make us better prayers. When we pray for better worship gatherings, Jesus will make us better worshipers. When we pray for a better ministry to children or youth or men or women or singles or senior citizens or the poor, we can expect that Jesus is going to answer those prayers and give us a deeper love for those people and the spiritual gifts with which to serve them. You see, the church changes as our hearts change. The church is not this building. It is not you. It is not me. The church of Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God, is working to build up his chosen people. So my prayer for you today is to look to him, to rest in him, to let God do his work in your heart because he is building you into a living stone. He is building his church through each of us. Let's pray. Loving God, thank you that uh, we are your children and that Christ is the rock of our salvation. May we build our confession of faith upon Christ and Christ alone, who is our precious Savior and friend, and in whose name uh, we pray.